What we thought about and what we saw from God's Word were correct responses to the coming into the world of God's Son. Correct responses to the coming into the world of Jesus. If you were here last week, I hope you remember that that's what we were uh, looking at. As we sort of witnessed that wonderful moment that uh, Mary enjoyed with Elizabeth as she visited her elderly relative, what did we see? But we saw the responses of joy. We saw a response of humility. And then we saw a response of faith. So correct responses to the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus. Well, this morning at St. Peter's, what I think we need to do really is continue in that vein. Um, Because as we stick around in Zechariah's home, that's what we're doing today, as we stay with Elizabeth and Mary, and as we listen to Mary singing here, uh, what I think we're actually shown is the ultimate response. I, I want to say that. I want to say it's the, the primary response we see here to the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what would that be? If we've already seen joy, we've seen humility and faith, what would be the ultimate response? Well, from Mary bursting into song, we see that the correct response, the primary response is praise. It's the response of worship. Now, if your memory is half decent, and mine is not, but if your memory is, you'll maybe recall that we structured things uh, slightly differently last Sunday morning. Do you remember that? We had something of an extended introduction in the service before we actually tried to get our teeth into the meat of the text, an extended introduction. And, and I really do want us to go down that route again this morning. So yes, we will have what you might expect us to have. We will have three headings, three points. We will have that. Before we get to that, though, I want to make, what will we call them? I want to make what we might call um, very brief introductory observations. Three introductory observations. They're observations from the text, but really that apply to our singing. This is a song that we're going to consider, isn't it? So what does this song have to teach St. Peter's and ourselves about how we praise and how we sing to God? So, so you're, you're with me, you'll allow three very brief, or maybe not so brief, but three brief-ish <laughs> Uh, introductory observations. Okay, right, let's go for them. Number one, if you, if you notice it here, this is a spontaneous song. It's a spontaneous song. What is this? What, what we've got here in front of us is actually one of the, the many songs that seem to punctuate the early chapters of Luke's gospel. Isn't it one of the many? What do we have? We've got Zechariah's song to come, don't we? There's Simeon's song, isn't there? There's the angel's song, and we have this song from, from Mary. I actually just want you to think about the venue or the location for this particular song. Now, where is Mary here? So is this a song that is sung as part of corporate worship? Is Mary uh, in the temple grounds at this point? 
And the obvious answer to that is, of course, no. This is a, a song that she just bursts into, and it's spontaneous, and she's, she's in someone's home, isn't she? She's, she's in Elizabeth's house. And I wonder, is there not, for you and me, a, a lesson even in that? Because I would ask you, when do we sing? When do you really sing to God? Like, is, is our thing... Our singing, is it merely reserved for times like this? Do we only sing in, in corporate worship? Or I wonder, could it be said to St. Peter's that our homes like this, do they resound to the praises of God? I mean, do we sing with our families to the praises of God? Do we do that? Do we even do that on occasion individually? Do we lift up our voices and praise to God? Because what have we got in front of us here? What do we see? Do we not see that it's fitting? Do we not see that it's good, that it's right for the people of God to lift up praise to God? And why? For sending a son? I think perhaps we could follow Mary's lead here. So first, what is it? It's a spontaneous song. Second observation, it's a, it's a sincere song, isn't it? Um, this, um, this song has a name, doesn't it? Or we, we like to call it, Will mentioned the name. And um, what's it called? It's called the Magnificat, isn't it? That's taken from the Latin for the word that you've got there in verse 47, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What do you think about when you think about that word magnifies what comes to mind for you can can i ask you not to think about a magnifying glass what do you do with a magnifying glass magnifying glass helps us to see that which is incredibly small that is not the idea in mary's mind instead i would ask you to to think about a telescope what do we do with a telescope a telescope enables us to, to look to space, to look to something that is vast. What will we go for? The Milky Way or a galaxy? And the telescope enables us to see this thing that is vast and to see it actually as it is. That's the idea. What does Mary say? My soul magnifies the Lord. Do you, do you see what she's saying? She's saying that the very sending of Jesus into the world, that has enabled her to see something or appreciate more of the vastness of God and to see this vastness of God as it really is. Do you see, as she considers this child that she's bearing within her, this appreciation, this has enlarged her sense of the majesty and the splendor and the grandeur of God. And what does it lead to? Come on. What does she say? My soul, my spirit. It leads to her whole self being caught up in the most intense and sincere of praise. I wonder, is that how we sing? Think about our last two items of praise. Does it sound like this? So it is spontaneous, it's sincere. The third observation would be that this is a scriptural song, isn't it? 
a scriptural song. I think many of you in the room uh, know about the Magnificat, that the Magnificat has a twin, doesn't it? The Magnificat has a twin elsewhere in the Bible. So I think we know, or many of us will know, that what Mary is doing here is she is using words, ideas, and phrases that she has taken from that song that Hannah sings uh, in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So this has got a, a twin elsewhere in the Bible. That's, in a sense, quite common knowledge, and that is commonly stated. Do you know what is not very often stated is that there's so much more that Mary here is using so much more of the Old Testament to give voice to her song. Now, do you follow what I mean by that? So here in this, and it's not a long song, is it, the Magnificat? But here in the short song, Mary is using echoes from Psalm 22, Psalm 107, so 103, Psalm 147. So there's echoes from verses in Genesis and Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel, all in this little song. So I would ask you, what impression are you given then of Mary? Come on. Your, the impression you're given, surely, is of someone who not only knows her Bible well, but someone who, through the Holy Spirit, sees it as fit to use that memorized scripture to give voice to her praises to God, right? She not only knows scripture, she uses it in praise. Now, hold your horses. Don't get ahead. Don't assume you know what the application is. You maybe assume he's going to tell us we need to memorize more scripture, right? But I would ask you just to recall how old she is. Isn't it something? Each time we come back to the fact that she's so young, she's 13, 14, 15 years old. Does that not add a little bit of depth to the challenge to us? I would speak to the parents in the room. Speak to the grandparents in the room. We're not seeing how important it is not just to teach our kids the Bible, but to encourage our children to memorize Scripture. Why? Not just that they might be clever. Not just that they might have it up here, but that they might follow Mary's lead. We don't know. The months to come and the years to come, these children too can use that memorized Scripture to give voice to their own songs of praise to the living God for sending Jesus. What do you see when you look at this? I think we see that it's a spontaneous song, a sincere song, and it's also a scriptural song. Okay, right, an extended introduction. Don't panic, an extend, I'm very aware, an extended introduction. Let's get to the text, because I want you actually at this point to notice the very next word. What is, if you've got the Bible there, what's the first word of verse 48? Do you see that the word is, she says, my soul's magnifying God, my, my spirit rejoices. And then what's the first word? For. Do you see that? So I think everybody can appreciate what she's going to do. She, she's now going to speak about the reasoning, the basis for her lifting up songs of praise to God, isn't she? And there's, there's three reasons. Here's the first one, our first heading. What we see is God's present redemption. So she sings to God of his present redemption. Um, as a church, even recently, we have talked a little bit about how other nationalities view us as Scots or Brits. We've talked a little bit about that, that we are uh, generally viewed as being a little bit restrained 
or reserved sometimes, or maybe that we think it's a little bit uncouth uh, to kind of speak openly and honestly about ourselves, right? Rightly or wrongly, that is how some nations view us. Well, as we begin to pick away at this song, I think we can see that Mary is nothing like that. Because do you notice how she begins her song? She begins by speaking so very, very personally. She speaks of what God has done, but what God has done for her in her own life. So what is it that God's done for Mary? Well, there's an obvious thing. I think we all know. And then there's a less obvious thing. Let's start with the obvious thing. So Mary praises God. Why? For the role that God has given her in salvation. For this role as the mother of the Lord. And you will see it if you look with me to the text. Let's put up verses 48 and 49. Now you have a look. What does she say? Do you notice what she does? She's praising God. First of all, do you notice that it's for God's loving observation of her life? Look at the term. She's praising God that he has looked. He's looked, and it's a term of love and compassion. He's looked upon her. Then, where does she go? You know, she praises God that he has, he's paid heed to her lowly status. You notice that her humble estate, God's looked and seen and paid heed to her humble estate. Where does it lead? Look at it. She finally praises God that he has lifted her up. And he says that he's exalted her. Do you see the idea that though she does not deserve it in any way, God has ensured by her bearing this child, Mary's going to be remembered. Remembered how? Remembered forever, but remembered favorably. Did you see what's going on? She's praising God for this role that God has given her as the, the mother of the Lord. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very obvious thing I have to say at this point, isn't there? This is distant from your experience. <laughs> so none of us, this is unique, right? None of us are going to be the mother of the Lord. It's entirely unique, of course it is. What I would love you to see and think about if you are a Christian is that despite this uniqueness, there is a very, very real parallel with your own life and your own experience. And I want you to consider this, that what we have here with Mary, what we see with her, is the way of working that God always uses in his people's life. And we're saying this is unique. Of course, it's unique. No one else is going to be in this situation. But if you look at Mary here and what she says, do you not see that this is the pattern that God always follows? Now, I want you, if you're a Christian, to think about your own experience. I'm asking you, what has God really done for you? And revisit the language here. Has he not, from before the foundation of the world, isn't that amazing? He has looked upon you. That's what God tells you. He has looked favorably with compassion upon you. Then what does God do? Isn't it the same? He has mercy on you in your humble and sinful estate. You can say the same thing. Where does it lead? It's the same for you. Though you do not deserve it, have not deserved it, God has exalted you to this place of remembrance, a place of honor and privilege. We look at it and we think, oh, this is unique. But the actual fact there is a similarity, there is a parallel here. You look at Mary and you realize, wait a minute, what is she? 
She is an example of someone who is quite simply touched by the finger of God's grace. So that's the obvious thing she gives voice to praise. What's the less obvious? I would ask you to look to the title that Mary gives God in verse 47. I do wonder if it jumped out at you. So if we put it up in verse 47, what's the title she gives God? What is it? God, my Savior. Now, come on, people. Mary says, God, my Savior. Do you see the significance of this? Hopefully you'll do. I'll read out what what one author says, because he sums that up better than I could, no doubt. So he says this, here Mary is praising God for more than just her role in bearing. Jesus, listen, here Mary is praising God that in this child her Redeemer has come. Don't you see it? Mary here is recognizing that the one she carries isn't just going to be this great political leader, this powerful ruler. No, 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 no. She praises God that soon to be born is the one that is going to save her from her sin. That's what she realizes. I rejoice in God, my Savior. Now, if you're with me, you're not drifting off. You're sticking with your minister for a moment. I wonder, do you not see that that makes an absolute mockery of some views that some churches will have of this wonderful woman that we are studying here, Mary? And you know what views I'm talking about? This idea that somehow Mary is sinless, perpetual virgin, that Mary somehow is a co-redemptress? What do you think of that? Do you not see that it is absolute nonsense that we come to God's inerrant living word, and what do we find here in Scripture? We see that not only with Mary is there a self-awareness that she is a sinner in need of a Savior. Not only that, but there is a recognition that that salvation is available through one person and one alone. So we see in Mary a recognition that that salvation is found in Jesus, in Christ and Christ alone. So she praises God for his present redemption. Second of all, Mary praises God for God's future reversal. Do you see? She's looked to the present. She's looked around her, her present redemption. Now where does she look? She looks ahead. And she looks to God's future reversal. Um, when we study the Old Testament book of Psalms, um, which we do quite a bit in our denomination, when we study the Old Testament book of Psalms, what we find is that in many of the Psalms, there is a pattern. So if you look at the book of Psalms, many of the Psalms of David and also some of the Psalms of Solomon, what they do is they flow from the individual out to the community. Do we appreciate that? Many of the Old Testament books of Psalms, it starts with individual reflection of what God has done for the person, and then that moves into a more general application 
for the community of Israel. So we find that time and time again in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Well, so we look at this, and let's face it, let's be honest, this is a New Testament psalm. We could call it that, couldn't we? What we find is something similar. Mary has spoken so, so personally, but now as we move into the middle section of the psalm, what we find is a more general application to the rest of the people of God. What does she say? Well, <coughs> to see what she says, I need your help. I need you, if you've got the Bible in front of you, will you do this for me? Would you turn right forward to uh, the book of Romans? Romans 8, verse 30. If you've got that, if you've got a Bible. Romans 8, verse 30. A couple of reasons why you might not need to do that to turn forward in your Bible. Some of you will know the verse off the heart. Or others of you will realize it's appeared behind my head. And so you don't need to do it. Right, so Romans 8, verse 30. Is this not one of the most famous verses in the Bible? It is. Um, it's what we call sometimes the golden chain of salvation. Would you read it with me? You don't have to read it out loud, but at least follow it along. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You're wondering, Andy, we were looking at the Magnificat, and why are we looking at this here? Yes? Would you consider the last term? What do we have? What strikes you about the last term? Does it not? It refers to something that is still to come, doesn't it? So it's only in the end that the church of Jesus Christ that we are going to be glorified. Yes? So this refers to something that's still to come. How, is it, how does Paul speak about it here? He speaks of it in a past tense. Do you notice? Can I just read the last, the last few words? And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's what's uh, uh, the technical term. What some people would call this is a prophetic aorist tense. So it's the idea of something being so absolutely certain because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something so sure because of Jesus that though that certain thing is in the future, the biblical author can talk about it as being in the past. So sure that we're going to be glorified because of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul can actually talk about it as already happened. Isn't it lovely in a sense? Well, if we go back to Luke's gospel, that's what we find here. Now, I want you to consider the central section of the Magnificat. Let's look at verses 51 to 53. 51 to 53. This is the central section. Do you, do you notice we've got the same thing? So though Mary, she's talking in a past tense. Look at the past tense. Uh, God has shown. God has scattered. Do you know what Mary's really doing? She's looking ahead here. And Marian's song is prophesying about what is going to happen, wait for this, about what is going to happen through Jesus Christ in the very end of the age. Now, what do you think of the Magnificat? Can I dare to suggest that it is not a mundane Christmas song? Boy, we are going to be plagued with mundane Christmas songs over the next few weeks, right? This is not Cliff Richards. 
You know, this is not some awful, terrible Christmas, Christmas number one. Do you not see how exciting it is? In song here to God. And for our benefit, Mary is revealing eschatological events. She's revealing, revealing what is going to happen at the end of the age. So what happens? What does she say? Well, do you notice if you look at it, there's a great reversal to come? There's two sides of it. Look at the first side of it. God is going to bring those who see themselves as mighty, and God is going to bring those people low. Look at the verses. Look at verse 51. Look, the proud. So that's the idea of those with no thought for God. They, in the end, are going to be scattered. What else? The mighty, the rulers. It's the idea, and I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. It's the idea of political rulers who oppose God's church. What's going to happen to them? They will be brought down. The rich, that's the idea of those who see themselves as independent, who do not rely on on God. What's going to happen to them? They are going to be sent away. Do you see the mighty in the end? Mary's things are going to be brought low. That's one side of it. What's the other side of it? It's the opposite side, isn't it? We see that the whole, the lowly are going to be elevated. Look at verse 52. Oh, in that day, the humble will be exalted. Verse 53, those who are hungry, they're going to be fed with, with good things. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Mary's singing of the fact that Jesus is going to turn everything on its head. The tables are going to be turned, the world upside down. And so don't you sit there this morning? And doesn't a question come to your mind? Don't we perhaps ask, especially if you're new to the church, how do I get into that latter group? <laughs> None of us here want to be amongst the mighty who in the end of days are, are brought low. We all want to be amongst those who will be elevated through Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Praise Almighty God. He tells you here in the song, Look at verse 50. Everything comes down to this. Oh, how I wish all of Dundee could read and hear and understand verse 50. What does it all come down to? Mary says, God's mercy is for those who fear him. God's mercy is for those who fear. Do you understand what she's singing? Mary is declaring, singing, that it's not just for her, that God's mercy is available for anyone who will, by faith, acknowledge him. That those who are going to be elevated and exalted and honored in the last are those who in this life have seen their sin and with broken and contrite heart, they look to God, they turn to God in trust, they put their faith in him. So you can see what I've got to do. Have to challenge you this morning. Have you done this? Have you looked to God in saving fear? Have you trusted in him? And if the answer in your heart is, yes, by grace, I have tasted the sweet mercy of God, then I would ask, well, what do you want to do? Do you not want to sing? Do you not want to lift up your voices in the praises of God? Because think about what Mary's saying lies ahead of you. 
Think about what you are going to see with your own eyes. Yes, you're going to see the proud and the mighty and those who oppose God's church. You're going to see them brought low. But what else will you see with your own eyes? You shall see the exaltation of God's church. Your own tears are going to be wiped away. Your own pain and all your grief is going to be vanquished. And you are going to be fed eternally by the goodness and the mercy of God. And how? How? It's all because of the little one that was growing inside of Mary. It is all by grace and it is all by the saving work of Jesus Christ. So Mary praises God for her present redemption. She praises God for the future reversal. And then in just a word, she also, if she's looked around, she's looked ahead, she looks back. And she praises God for his past revelation. His past revelation. (coughs) So God is the subject of the song, Jesus is the hero of the song. I wonder if you would concur with me that Mary herself comes across as a remarkable individual. Don't you think so? Especially given her age, a remarkable individual. I think though, as she enters the very last words of the song, the grand conclusion of her song, I think that impression that we've got of her of being a remarkable young woman I think that impression is only strengthened right at the end. What does she do? What we find is that as well as being a woman of faith, as well as knowing her Bible well, what we find right at the end is that this young woman was a formidable theologian. We find that right at the end. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? I'll tell you what, let's look at it. Let's look as we close right at the end of the song. If we could put up verses 54 and 55. I'll ask you, what do you see? And how can we think of Mary as a theologian? What do we see? Well, yeah, we see that she talks about the help that God has given Israel. She's referring to Jesus, isn't she? The saving assistance God has given. But do you notice how she talks about Jesus? Like she understands that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Do do you see that from the verses on the screen? She understands that this one that she carries, what is this? But but fruit of a a promise that God has made long ago. You recognize that. Now, Now, I want you, please, please, just to linger on that. What does that tell you? It tells you that Mary understands how the storyline of the Bible fits together. Doesn't that tell you that? It tells you that that, that Mary understands that the Bible is this one long, overarching story of the covenant of grace. Do you follow that? Are you with me? Like, please stick with me for a second. So this young woman, 14 years old, 13, 14, 15 years old, she realizes, okay, yes, way back in the garden, God has promised saving seed. 
Hasn't he? He's promised this gospel salvation. But what else does Mary appreciate and seem to understand? She, she appreciates that through a series of covenants, that, that through the Old Testament, that God has gradually unfolded that promise that he made in, in the garden through a series of covenants that, that unfold the truth of this gospel promise. Who were the, the, the covenants with? with? With Moses? More of an unveiling? With David? But who does she mention specifically in front of you? Abraham! Like, come on, isn't it amazing to think that Mary seems to understand what the Apostle Paul makes clear in Galatians. She understands that when God spoke to Abraham and said, the whole world will be blessed through your offspring, Mary understands that that offspring wasn't plural, but singular. And she understands that even with Abraham, there was one saving individual in view. She understands that, but more, she praises God because she recognizes that's who I'm carrying. That is who is in my womb. It is the mediator of the covenant of grace. She understands this is Jesus. What is Mary? I'll tell you what Mary is. She is a formidable covenant theologian. Now we maybe look at this and think this is it's tremendous for Mary. Is there any application for us as we close? Oh, I think there is. I think what you've got there for Mary should reinforce your faith in God right now, Christian friend. You can see the logic, can you? If 2,000 years after he spoke to Abraham, if after 2,000 years God fulfills his promise, what do we know as a church? We can trust God's word. After 2,000 years, and Mary sees it and recognizes that's a fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. If that is true, then we know that our God is one who is steadfast and faithful to his, his promise. And what does that mean for you? What does it mean for us? Surely it means that we rejoice because what's he promised you? What do we know? We know, oh, as we will remember in a moment, we know that our sin will never, ever be held against us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in Calvary Hill. We know it. It is sure he has promised it to his church. We know, you and I, that we will rise in death. He who is faithful has promised that to you. We know that there is coming a renewed heaven and a renewed earth for us to inhabit. He has told you this. He is a God who never lies. And we know a time is coming when we will gather again together around a throne. We will gather with our Christian loved ones. And we will worship the Lamb who was slain. We know it. It is sure he has promised his people. And so I ask you again, what do you want to do? Do you not want to sing of his glories? Do you not want to sing of his grace? As we look to God's present redemption, as we look to his future reversal and all that's coming to us, as we look at his past faithfulness, do we not want to sing?
And how do we do that? Do we not want to join our voices to Mary's song and sing songs of loudest praise? To whom? Do we not want to sing to the living God? And for why? For sending Jesus. For sending for you, for you, his only beloved son. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, the Father Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, 